Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for the gift of your word, that you are a God who desires to be known. You are a God who communicates, Lord, and you have revealed yourself in your son Jesus Christ, the living word of God, and you reveal yourself continually to your church through the scriptures, the written word of God, by the Holy Spirit who inspires the word of God. Thank you that you want to be known. So come Holy Spirit now and give us a message from your word. We pray that you would be with me, the preacher of your word. Grant me a, a tender heart towards you, Lord, that I would obey the promptings and heed the warnings of the spirit even as I preach. I pray for all of us this morning that you would give us good soil in our hearts so that the implanted seed of the word of God would bear great fruit for your kingdom. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I really, I really love this parable. It's a really familiar parable, I think, the parable of the soul, sower. Uh, there are tremendous parables about the kingdom of God. We're going get, to get to hear a lot of those over the next couple of Sundays in this chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. Lots of just really good, juicy stuff here. Uh, you might could call this parable not only, I mean, Jesus calls it the parable of the sower, but it's also really the parable of the soils because the emphasis is on what kind of soil the seed falls into, the word of the kingdom falls into. But one of the great things about this parable, though, is that it's kind of like, okay, Jesus gives the parable, and then he does something that he almost never does. He explains the whole thing. And so I feel like we could just read it and then say, okay, any questions? No? Okay, we'll go home now. Uh, but I, I really love that kind of clarity. But it is so rich, though. We do need to linger over this a little bit and maybe dig down into it a little bit. Jesus says there's basically... Uh, four different reactions, four possible reactions to the word of the kingdom being proclaimed. There are four possible reactions to Jesus' call for discipleship, to follow him. And he, he sums it up under the, the categories of four different types of soil. He talks about uh, the hard soil. Now, I think these are the words we need to just kind of remember. Very simple, isn't it? Hard soil. And then he talks about shallow soil, hard, then shallow soil, then thorny soil, or you might want to say weedy soil, and then finally good soil. So we got to talk about the hard, the shallow, the weedy, and the good. And those are everyone in this room, all of us, me, you, everyone in this room, is going to fall into one of those four categories. It's all-encompassing. So it really makes sense for us to pay attention to it and listen to it this morning. And that first category is Jesus talks about the hard soil. Let me read that passage. The seed that is sown among, along the path. This is Matthew 13, verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, does not perceive it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So I talk about that as being hard soil because uh, back in the first century and still today in many places in the Middle East and throughout that part of the world, uh, the standard way of sowing seed was broadcast sowing. And you've probably seen like paintings of this where somebody's got a cloth bag full of seed on one side and they're dipping their hand into it and pulling out the seed and just flinging it like that. And those fields in Palestine in the first century, and again, still in some places today, were long, narrow strips of fertile, 
cultivated land, and between those strips of cultivated land were the paths. And because of being constantly tread upon, uh, being walked over, literally generation after generation, you need to think about that, some of those fields have literally been in, in cultivation for thousands of years. You know, we're a very young country, we don't think that way. Uh, I have a friend, Jack Gabig, who was one of my instructors when I was going through my, my uh, doctor's degree, my doctoral degree, and he had just come out of, uh, finished up his PhD at Oxford University in England. And so as he would walk to his college in Oxford, he would walk by this um, woman's house. Jack is a huge gardener. He'd walk by this little cottage there on the street, on the little, one of those little narrow streets going to the college that he was a member of in, in Oxford, and he would stop and just marvel at this beautiful front yard, her front garden. It's a oh, garden, yes, that's what it's called, my front garden. So, uh, and so one day he sees the lady out there working in her front garden, and he asks her, he says, ma'am, you know, um, this is beautiful. Your, your lawn is absolutely stunning. You, the, the plants are, I, they're vibrant. They don't even look real. They're so beautiful. How do you do this? And so she began to list off all of the things that she did to keep that garden looking so beautiful. And he's listening and listening. And, and then at the end, he says, well, ma'am, you know, I'm a gardener, and I do exactly all those, thing, those same things in my yard. And it doesn't look anything like this. And she said, Oh, but oh yes, well, you have to do it for 400 years. <laughs> See, we don't think like that. And so these pathways that have been trodden upon literally for generations are so compacted that they're exactly like cement. Or down east in North Carolina, where um, we're from the south central part of the state, but even farther east when we lived on the Outer Banks, there's this dirt that is, uh, you'll see it sometimes, it's called hard pan. I don't know if it's everywhere, but it's certainly in the eastern part of North Carolina called hard pan and it's just like that it's sandy soil that has been just flattened out and stomped on stomped it's a technical agricultural term uh, for so long that it turns into the substance of concrete and nothing will grow on it and that's what Jesus is talking about that he says that is the the same thing as uh, the the word of God sown along the path it's like a seed that can't even take root in that kind of soil. The hard soil is, is the wayside or the path. This is a person, it represents a person with really a closed mind and a closed heart. This is a person who hears the good news of God and then just doesn't get it. And I have been in gospel conversations with people before where I'm saying things that are, are kingdom things and all, uh, sharing my faith or something like that. And I, it's almost like you can see the word of God, the, the gospel just bouncing off people. You know, the word goes off and it just bounces right off of them. Hardness. So what causes that kind of hard heart? A heart that cannot understand or a heart that can't receive the implanted seed. Well, I think there's several things that do this. I want to run through them very quickly because I think it's instructive for us as we think about our own lives and the lives of those we love. And the first thing I think that can create hardness of heart is just this, is, is hurt, hurt. I think that hearts can be hardened by deep wounds that can cause people to react and respond by, uh, because of cynicism and bitterness by just holding on to the hurt and it hardens their heart and the word of God can't penetrate that. Or sometimes it's because we instinctively know that the word of God, we harden our heart 
because of not hurt, but selfishness or self-directed living. We recognize that if we were to receive this message of the kingdom, it would radically change our lives into a direction from a life of direction of serving and pleasing myself to serving and pleasing God. And so we'll harden our hearts out of selfishness. Or sometimes I think this is uh, not infrequent, that hearts become hardened because of pride. Now I've said this, you know, I told, said in the first service um, that my spiritual gift is being redundant. Uh, you know, I, I, I've not seen that in the list of gifts of the Spirit in the Bible, but I think it probably is one. So uh, redundancy, and I've said this before, that a lot of times, you know, we can't get away with, say, with, with making emphatic declarative statements out of pure ignorance most of the time. We've got people involved in, in medicine in, in this church, a lot of people involved in health care. And so if I were to make some outrageous uh, statement and just opine and make declarative statements in ignorance, somebody would probably call me out, or at least they would think, oh, that's just, that's just ignorant. But there seems to be an ex exception to that kind of category. It's you can be totally ignorant about the Christian faith and just say anything you want to, and people nod their head and say, yeah, that's probably right. Uh, I think that's, that's a form of pride. That actually happened this past week on a, on a, a news presenter uh, said something. Said I, I said, after all, Jesus himself said he wasn't perfect. Well, no, that's nowhere in the Bible. But it doesn't say that at all. Jesus never said that. In fact, that's what we're depending on is his perfection. I hope he's perfect because otherwise us sinners are really in a bad way. And so, uh, and he just got away with saying ignorant stuff. Here's where that comes from. Uh, ignorance is the child. It's the offspring of pride. You, and this will harden a heart. I already know all that stuff. You already know that Jesus stuff. Don't tell me anything. I already know all that. I don't know what the answer to life's questions are, but I know it's not Jesus. I already know all that. Pride. But then there's also the, the issue of toxic religion. I think that hardens people's hearts too. Uh, it happens in a couple of ways. You know, we've seen way too much of this in every denomination. Uh, clergy abuse, and unfortunately, frequently, clergy sexual abuse. And once that happens in a congregation, it just destroys people's faith. It's like, um, Lisa and I were in a, in a foreign country a while back. Uh, of course, we're a foreign country if you're not from here. Um, things I learned in church today. All right. Uh, but we were in a, a, another country a while back, and that, that experience had, was rife throughout all of the little villages that we, whenever conversations about Jesus would come up, everybody had a story about clergy abuse. And this, was, this country, which used to be incredibly devoted to Jesus Christ, is just thoroughly secular now, and that is one of the contributing reasons. Or toxic religion in the sense of a combination of of uh, rules and rituals and hypocrisy in the sense of legalism. Legalism, in other words, uh, where you where you just make where religion, where the Christian faith is presented as a form a, a list of rules that you have to maintain, and then if you don't maintain them, there's nothing but condemnation. And people coming out of those really highly legalistic backgrounds often will have their hearts hardened by that. But I think probably the most, uh, the reason that most hearts get hard, and please listen to this, uh, is I think the, the, the most hardening factor of people's hearts is the repeated hearing and then rejection of God's word. It's kind of like we build a callus, an impenetrable callus on our hearts. 
by hearing the word of God, hearing the gospel repeatedly offered, and then rejecting it, the result is a callousness of spirit, a hardness of heart. And then Jesus says that when our hearts are hard and we do hear the word of God, it doesn't that, that seed has no purchase. And what happens is the enemy of our souls, there is a spiritual adversary. The evil one, Jesus says, comes and, and takes the seed away. And so not only are hearts hardened, there is an act of spiritual personal agent of evil seeking to, to, to keep that seed from taking root. And I've seen that before I was a follower of Jesus Christ. I remember being drugged to church. Didn't want to go. Kind of like you can see where my fingernails have been drugged along the ground as my parents drug me to church. And I remember after coming out of that, out of, a, out of service, I can distinctly remember just being irritable and, and something would happen and it was catalyzed. Please, this is weird, but it's true. It was, there was this catalyzing of that experience of, of rejection that um, I would be irritable and there would always be a fight after church. You know, I'd get in a fight with my sister or something like that. And that was the enemy just get, get your mind off of what you just heard, hard-hearted teenage boy. Get your, hard, get your mind off of that. Jesus says there's also, so that's the hard soil. He also talks about shallow soil. Let me read that passage to you again. It's Matthew 13, verses 20 and 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while... And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So those rocky places that Jesus mentions are not really like we, we hear of the rocky soil. We think of soil that just has a lot of rocks in it. But what he's really talking about, again, if we're thinking about first century Palestine, there are, there's a lot of places where you have a very thin layer, an inch or two of, of topsoil, and right below that is the substrate of limestone, just sheer limestone shelf. It's like bedrock. Soil, just a tiny bit of soil, and bedrock. And so that's what he's thinking about, or that's what he's talking about, is shallowness. It's not just rocks in it, it's shallow because there's soil underlying the soil is a shelf of rock. So these are those who immediately hear God's word. They respond with joy. In fact, sometimes rocky soil, that shallow soil, can be the soil where plants just jump up the quickest. Uh, I don't know if you're gardening right now, but a lot of people just to keep their sanity are. Uh, we are at my house. And you know, beans to germinate love warm soil. You can't, we, we planted some beans early, early in the season, and they just wouldn't germinate. But you know, they, that, that bean has to be planted in a warm soil and it'll pop right up. Well, that shallow soil can be very warm. I mean, it's just getting heated right up. There's no depth to it sprouts right up and then withers away when the hot sun hits it. And that's the way it is with a lot of times with people. Their commitment comes very quickly. They respond with joy, but it's only temporary, and they fall away almost equally as quickly. Sometimes they seem to be the most promising and gifted disciples at first glance, but the seed is in a shallow soil, and it will not thrive. You know, I haven't encountered as so many hard people, I think, uh, as a pastor, as I have, uh, I don't see the hardness of heart so much in my ministry. I see a lot of shallowness of heart. And please, Lord, don't let that be me. Um, Richard Foster wrote, superficiality is the curse of our age. The doctrine of instant satisfaction 
is a primary spiritual problem. The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. And I would say amen to that. Shallow disciples respond emotionally and enthusiastically to the gospel at first, but they don't have depth to support the word that's planted in them. And as soon as, as, soon as a, you know, remember what G.K. Chesterton said, um, Christianity hasn't been, has, not, has not been tried and been proved false. It's, it's been tried and found difficult. All right? And so as soon as being a disciple becomes difficult or inconvenient, that young plant of faith withers and dies. And, you know, brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you that I think the greatest threat that the church in North America faces in this, it's this very moment is a pervasive shallowness. That shallowness, that shallowness is deeply connected with, the, with one of the foundational religious stories. This is a foundational religious story that we tell ourselves that we believe about the world. Here is the religious story that most of us believe about the world. It's the story of consumerism. How is that a religious story? Well, you think about all the advertising you see. If you buy product X or this good if, or service X, then look at these happy, pretty people. Look how pretty they are. Look how, look how normal their children look and how happy they look. And how nobody's mad at each other. And, and look, they're just aglow a with health. You know? And that is, you are being told a gospel that by, by consuming goods and services, I'll, be a, I'll live a life of happiness and fulfillment. And that, that consumer gospel is the root of so much of our shallowness of Christian faith. The clash between the cultural priority of consumerism and the church's priority of fidelity to Jesus Christ is felt keenly by pastors. Um, we don't talk a lot about pastors. You've got one. You know all about them. But, uh, but John Stone Street and Maria, Maria Baer wrote just this past week. They wrote a little commentary. And I thought it was significant. I wanted you to hear this. It said, while, while we all must navigate the issues of race, Sexual, sexuality and gender, criminal justice, political divisions, and other markers of our fallen human nature that dominate this cultural moment, pastors face expectations that many of us don't. And I want to just stop right there and say, you know what, this church has been awesome. You, know, we've been, you guys have been awesome through coronavirus. You've been awesome as we've dealt with issues of racial justice and, uh, and police violence and things like that, as well as you know, just the whole fallenness and brokenness generally that we encounter in the world, uh, you've been, you've really just been exemplary. And you have been so um, encouraging and positive with me. I haven't, we, you know what we haven't had at Christ Church? We have not had the great mask civil war. You know, I hate them, hate them. You know, but we, but we haven't had that. But some churches have. And some churches have people, I because I hear this from, uh, other people that you know who've had, if, you may, if I have to wear a mask to church, I'm just not going to come back. Woo, that's a deep Christian thought. Oh my goodness gracious, you're ready for martyrdom, I can tell. Wow, when they come for you and your family, you're going to stand strong for the gospel. Oh no, I fell away because of masks. I don't want that said at the judgment seat, okay? 
But, but I haven't had to deal with that here. But some of my brothers in, 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 the, in the ministry certainly have. And I hear this from them, so I'm reading it in that context. Pastors face expectations that many of us don't. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this phrase I'm reading now on social media recently. If your pastor doesn't preach about X from the pulpit this Sunday, it's time for you to find a new church. Same phrase, but the X changes with the headlines. When we view church like we do so much of 21st century Western life, as consumers, we'll see church as a place to be entertained or affirmed in our feelings and in our views. That rather than a fidelity to Christ and his gospel is, what, is what's driving so much of the entitlement we feel and pastors face. That's shallowness. You know, one of the things that the coronavirus pandemic is revealing and is going to continue to reveal is just how many of us were shallow Christians. The Barna Research Group came out just this past week and uh, their study reveals that only 35% of practicing, we're not talking about people just on the rolls, 35% of practicing Christians during this time have been attending their church on Sunday, either online or in person, so during the pandemic. Another third are digitally church hopping. Now, I want to give you just free range. As long as you, you, as long as you show up here digitally at some point on Sunday morning or maybe in the week, go church hop all you want to. It's great. Go, go feast in the fields of the Lord. But stay here with us too, okay? But what's happening is they're not doing that. Another third are just digitally church hopping. And then the Barna research indicates, and this is what's really sad, the rest have dropped out altogether, the last third have. And someone might say, well, what about all those people, you know, they never attended church, but now because it's all online, everybody's watching. Let me tell you, here's the facts. That number is so small as to be statistically insignificant, according to Barner Research. That did not happen. I think that once all of the precautions have been lifted and we have a vaccine or we've got herd immunity or whatever, many, many churches in North America are going to come back to greatly reduced ranks. Even here at Christ Church, we may find that for a season, our space limitations will have been remedied, at least temporarily, as shallow believers wither and never return. A few weeks ago on a prayer hike, the Lord gave a, there, he put a word on my mind and in my heart, and that word is harrowing. You know, like a, what, what gets pulled behind a tractor or behind draft horses. It's like a big rake. And a coarse harrow was drugged through the field before, uh, right before planting, really. That coarse harrow would be drugged through a field to pull up weeds and clean out debris so it could be fertile and sowed. But it's just like that's what's going on in the church. The church is being harrowed right now. Run through with a harrow that's pulling out the weeds and debris and the shallow weeds at that, but ultimately for greater fruitfulness. And then there's thorny soil or weedy soil. Jesus says in Matthew 13, verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. 
This is soil where the seed has to compete with weeds. And you know, sometimes weeds aren't even bad. They're kind of nice. Mint, if you ever get, if mint gets loose in your yard, let me tell you what, it is going to choke everything else. It's wonderful. You can make some juleps. I've never had a mint julep. I need to do that. Somebody can fix me one someday. Thank you, thank you. Uh, yes, we need to put this one online so that everybody hears that, okay, Joe? Uh, just to get the word out. But, you know, you can make juleps with it. You can make mint tea with it. It smells good when you walk through it, but it will slap, choke your garden to death. Weedy soil. And that happens, I think that happens a lot of times to us. We, we need God to bring the gospel weed eater <laughs> to our hearts. This is soil where the seed has to compete. And there, these are the things in our lives that compete with God, the things that are um, uh, other affections or other attentions or other devotions that are competing with God and the devotion to God in, their life, in our life. And that has the power to choke our spiritual lives to death. Jesus talks about the cares, the cares of this world, the cares and the deceitfulness of riches. Cares can mean, can mean worry. I, think, I tend to think of worry as, um, as being a discontentment in the future sense. Discontentment in the, in the future tense uh, is where we, we, we worry about tomorrow. But Jesus is really talking about cares. And that encompasses not just cares and worries about tomorrow, but the anxieties of life right now. And I think a lot of us are feeling the cares of this world right now, particularly with all that is going on around us in our, you know, in our, the divisiveness and, and, and uh, unrest in our society and, and with, with pandemic and all of these things. Jesus says the cares of this life can choke the word. How does that happen? Listen, how does it happen that the cares can choke the word? Here's how it happens. Um, what the cares and anxieties of this life do is that they shift our attention, all right, are you listening? From God to the urgency of this anxiety. And that's, what, that's how it can choke us spiritually. It shifts our attention so that our, God, our life is not God-centered. It becomes worry-centered or anxiety-centered. So the things in this life begin to preoccupy us. And here's what happens, folks. The more you focus, or you, please heed this. The more you focus on what you're anxious about, the less God is going to seem real to you. And the only remedy for that is to reorient your life back to God and, and do what Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33. We know this, don't we? Seek, But seek ye first, he's talking about anxieties now, the cares of this life. But seek ye first the kingdom of God, put God in the center, and his righteousness, right relationship with God and others, and all these other things will be added unto you. Because the reality is this, friends, is that most of what we worry about, we have no ability to affect. So why not take it to the person who does? Why not resign from general management of the universe? And turn that back over to the one who really does that well. And then we will find rest for our souls. We talked about that yes, uh, last Sunday. So the, the anxieties, the urgency of life. And by the way, just because somebody's urgent about it on, on social media does not make it worth being urgent about. 
just so you know. It's okay to ignore those people. Don't be those people. And then he talks about the riches, the deceitfulness of riches. Because here's the thing is that what when he talks about the deceitfulness of riches, how is that deceitful? Here is the deceit of riches. Are you ready? If you have enough money, then you will have security and comfort and ease of mind. That's the deceit. Because anybody that has focused their life on money can tell you they don't have security or peace of mind or comfort. They have stuff, but they don't have peace. And Jesus says, if you're focused on the deceitfulness of riches, it will choke the word. Word. It will choke. It will fill you with anxiety. It, th there, there is one source for peace and comfort and security, and it is not in riches. Jeremiah chapter 2 God says to his people, two th in two things have my people done evil. They have rejected me, the fountain of living water. They've rejected me. They've turned away from me, the fountain of living water. And they've dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. And that's what riches are. They're broken cisterns. We want to pour our desire for comfort and security into those, but they're broken and they will fail us. You know, Mark's version adds one more thing, and I'll, I'll, I want to pull this in because it, it literally covers everything else. Mark's version of this passage in Mark chapter um, 4, it says this. Uh, Jesus says that the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and then he adds this, and the desire, desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Things other than God. So let me just ask you, brothers and sisters, what are you desiring? What are you desiring other than the thing that can truly bring satisfaction and fulfillment to your life. What are you saying if I, this about, if I only had this, then life would have meaning, I would be satisfied and happy. If that other thing, if that thing is not, if I only had more of Christ in my life, more of the fullness of the Holy Spirit, more of a deeper relationship with the Lord, if that's not what I'm answering that question with, that will choke your, your life, and you won't bear fruit. Finally, Jesus says in Matthew 13, 23, As for what was sown among, on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. God desires for us to have good dirt in our hearts. Good dirt. Soil that bears fruit. It grows and reproduces. If we are to grow in Christ and bear fruit for Christ, and that fruit can be the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, you know that stuff? It can be the fruit of, of men, women, boys, and girls, one to Jesus Christ through, the, through our witness and through the, through the proclamation of the gospel. Whatever it is, then if we want to have that kind of fruit, we need to be deep with soft and tender hearts, lives that are clean and clear of the things that would choke our usefulness for God. How can I do that? Great, Ben, thanks, thanks. That sounds just like what I need, a burden. All right, go out and be the, cry really hard to do those things. No, that's not, how, that's not what I'm saying. Here's how we have a heart that is good soil. Are you, are you ready? It's so simple. I'm just going to say it over and over again, a gift of redundancy. 
First of all, it's just the means of grace. The means, the ordinary means of grace. Anybody can do it. We can, we can encounter God's power to give us good soil in our hearts. We can have that happen to us because God is the one who initiates and provides the means of grace. What are they? Prayer. Just spending time with God. Please, every time you, every time you feel anxious, that should from now on this week, let that be your cue. Okay, thank you, devil, for reminding me to worry. I'm going to go pray now. You'll stop being so anxious. He'll stop that mess with you. If every time you feel anxious, the devil tries to make you feel that way, and you start to pray, he'll learn his lesson. He won't let you do that. No, but go to God in prayer. Prayer is the first means of grace. Meditating on God's word, spending time with the, the reality that God of, who reveals himself. He wants us to know him. He is a God who reveals himself, who communicates to us in his word, and it is a means of grace to begin to, to cultivate the soil of our hearts. There are many other means of grace. Sharing your faith. When you share your faith, God's power flows in and through you. He promises to do this by his Holy Spirit. That's a means of grace. And right this, in, in this service, right now, this morning, we're going to participate in my, one of my favorite means of grace, the Lord's Supper. Here's why this is so wonderful and why it, it is ordinary. It's because I don't have to be super Christian to get to participate in the power of God at this table. I don't have to have been super spiritual all week. Oh, you need to, some of you need to hear this. You're shackled by that need. You can have just been plain old, run the mill, maybe even not a real good Christian, and come here in repentance of that and in faith for, in Jesus Christ and under the signs of plain old bread and plain old wine, Jesus promises to show up and put his power in your life, his life in your life. I need that. It's a means of grace. And you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be gifted. You just have to come hungry. Come hungry. Come hungry. And let God rotor-root. <laughs> Get that rotor-root. Go to that rototiller. I have rotor-rooter too, probably. <laughs> Get those drains cleared out. <laughs> to rototill the, the soil of your heart. Cultivate it. And then you will become a fruitful Christian. And we can depend on the gardener to do that for us when we come with faith and repentance. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.